do a little thought experiment here. What do we know and what do we think about witches? If it were Halloween, I would say that I think about women dressing up in cute Halloween costumes, striped socks, glitter, pointy hats, long black hair, maybe purple, maybe a corset. Yes. Something sexy. Mm-hmm. Lace, perhaps black. Well, and we know that here we have a witch's ride. Yes, and when we have our witch's ride, we see hundreds of women dressed in all kinds of expressions of cute witchness. But is this really what witches are all about? Well, Amaya, I wonder if a witch, an actual woman who was burned at the stake, if she came and witnessed, for example, our witch's ride, what would she think about what she's seeing? Right. So here we are. The way we think about witches, typically at Halloween, costume, purple, stripes, wig, hat, maybe a broomstick, obviously is not accurate. Perhaps if we looked at a more accurate scenario, we would actually see a woman standing in front of a group of men, judges, no legal rights of her own, being accused of being a witch. Having her clothes stripped off of her, hands touching her in various places, searching for that mark indicating that she might be a witch, often found in the crevices of women's private parts, the mark of the devil, the clitoris, for example. And then after she's been searched, or in addition to being searched, she might have her breast cut off. She might have her limbs stretched out slowly, ripping her... (laughs) arms and legs out of their sockets. She might be left in prison with no food to rot and die as many women did. She might, in addition to all of that, be tied up, hung or tied up and burned while her children watch her die, her children and her family. So when we see this kind of a scenario, and then we look at how we honor witches now, there's clearly a disconnect. I thought it would be funny if I showed up as a real woman who had been burned at the stake. What would that look like? I probably wouldn't be uh, well-received, right? Because it'd be really gross and ugly. Horrific, It would be horrific. It's actually very horrific. So somewhere along the line, We really lost an accurate perspective of what really happened to women for how long it happened and how atrocious it was. It's almost as if we can't handle the pain of what really happened. We have to make a caricature out of the witch. Because if we really were to represent the truth of the times and the witch burning, and the trials. It would be very ugly and make people very uncomfortable. And ironically, of all the holocausts that have happened in history, of all the genocides that have happened, slavery, there's no other extreme violence against another group that has been characterized as the witch. Could you imagine if we had the same costume for a slave? 
if we had the same costume for right. a survivor of the Holocaust, why is it that we have a cute costume that women wear to honor witches? Clearly, there's a disconnect. And so our book club is reading now Witch Craze, A New History of the European Witch Hunt by Anne Lewin Barstow and subtitled Our Legacy of Violence Against Women. And in this book, we get an accurate portrayal of what really happened and what witches truly are. So this book is a book that we just finished reading in our book club, and it's an amazing book. It offers a really good overview, insight from a feminist perspective of the witch craze that happened in Europe during the 16th through around the 18th century. And one of the other reasons why we really wanted to do a podcast on this particular book is because it offers a great uh, framework for a conversation about women's sexuality, women's agency, and what happens a lot of times in conversations about these kinds of subjects is that there's no real historical context for what women have kind of lost. So basically what I'm saying to say that differently is that as women start to try to regain their sexual agency and have these conversations around this topic, they oftentimes really just don't have a good historical framework for it. They don't understand how they lost this agency in the first place. And a lot of discussions about this really ignores the witch craze, but the witch craze was a widespread 200 years persecution primarily of women. Right. And when we think about this time, we think about the Salem witch trials. And that really is only, you know, a small portion of what had been happening for decades, if not hundreds of years before it came over into North America. It was in Europe. And we, we know so little about this. Right, we really do. We know so little. The Salem witch trials is kind of the representation culturally, at least in, in the United States, of what we perceive to be the whole witch craze or right. the witch trials. But she really talks about that as being something that's kind of on the tail end of what had already been happening for a couple hundred years all across Europe. You know, it's very widespread. And in fact, the Salem witch trials was just in comparison a very few women that were um, burned at the stake or tortured or persecuted for being witches, right? Yeah. And maybe we should we should put this into historical context and also numbers right away. And, you know, Lee, you were talking about the the dates, the range of dates, and also the range of numbers. And I know you have it written down, so if you wouldn't mind sharing yeah, it with our I listeners. Do. I think, you know, she looks at um, different numbers that have been presented by researchers. She's really, uh, Barstow's really addressing this from a feminist perspective because people who are researching the witch hunt seriously, she's saying that they still have yet to do it from a perspective of gender, from a feminist perspective, looking at this as a systematic hatred and persecution of women. So she offers numbers that are around 100,000 over the course of 200 years, roughly between the 16th century to the late 18th century, so 1500s to 1700s. And she also talks about it in all various regions of Europe and in the, in the United States. But she says that of the people who were, um, her percentage of the people who were actually accused around 80% were women, and other people who were actually were burned at the stake or otherwise killed was around 85% women. And she does, she does talk about other researchers in the field coming up with numbers upwards of a million affected, right. persecuted, killed. Right. <laughs> but we don't, we don't really know. We don't really know because we don't have the records. Right. And she's really going by what she could find through records. Right, right. Yeah. But she does, she definitely says, you know, the numbers could be higher. 
could be higher. And a lot of people think that the numbers are, are much higher than the 100,000. But regardless, 100,000 is a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. It's a significant a moment in history that, again, people just don't talk enough about. I mean, there's, there are no monuments, really, for this persecution, you know. And, and women then, if they don't have this historical account, they don't have, understand the various reasons which we're going to talk about, that women were persecuted, that women were targeted specifically. If they don't understand this history, then they really don't understand the sort of collective trauma the, of, or the trauma of the collective consciousness, right? Mm-hmm. So I think it's really important to keep coming back to these historical accounts and to come back to this one specifically because it offers some really interesting perspective on some of the problems that women have, the disconnect that we have with our sexuality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. So we have on our board of uh, topics to talk about and ways to frame this discussion. The first one is basically the control of female sexuality and agency. That's kind of how we wanted to frame our discussion in this book. But before we do that, before I go there, I do want to uh, read from the book because one of the things that this book offers is actual accounts. Like what did they really do to these women, right? It isn't just being burned at the stake, although that's a pretty uh, horrific thing to do to somebody. There's all kinds of other things that were attached to that torture, trying to get confessions, confessions. Yes. Trying to get confessions out of women. So I just wanted to read one of the accounts that um, she has in here. Yeah. And this is the thing. Her book is peppered with this, these personal stories of the torture. So if you, (laughs) if you're interested in really getting a good idea of what happened, pick up this book. It's kind of terrifying. It is. It's hard to get through. But at the same time, as she says, that's really, these kind of difficult stories really need to be told because people just don't really get a good idea of what happened. It's too easy to just chalk it up to, oh yeah, women were, this was a dark history or dark moment in history. And that's in the past. And that's all we really need to know about this. Right. So I want to read just really quickly a passage from the book that talks about a particular incident from a woman who was tortured for a while to get a confession out of her and then eventually burned at the stake. So, imprisoned, subjected to an indecent examination, and identified as having a devil's mark, she begins bravely enough, laughing heartily and denying all charges until she is stretched on the ladder. Then she confesses she is a witch, only to retract the statement as soon as the ropes are loosened. This process of denial, torture, confession goes on until she admits to practicing evil magic. One night after she had just given birth to another child, her husband had come home drunk and cursed her, wishing the devil would take her and all the children. Moving along a little further, as the torture continues day after day, she confesses to many crimes, even some she was not accused of, poisoning her six-year-old and causing her former mistress's four-year-old to die of plague. When she is not repentant enough to satisfy the court, she is flogged, and then admits that some years ago she had killed her own horse and cow and had intercourse with the devil in her prison cell. She also tries to commit suicide there by scratching open an old wound in her arm so she would bleed, and by suffocating herself. But each time they lessen the torture, she denies all that she has said. Her most shocking confession, though, is of the corpse of her own child, buried six years and all rotted away, in order to cook the remains to make a magic powder that she gave to her devil. But what haunts her most are her sexual failings. Because of her seduction by the devil, she cannot pray anymore and fears she will not go to heaven. Yet she got no pleasure from her affair, for the devil beat her and caused her pain when they were in bed. Throughout her trial, the judges have assumed her guilt and worked only to get her to confess and to name others. Although this was a secular court, it opened each day's session with prayer. Finally, her mind grows confused. She now confesses without the prompting of the latter. Describing in detail her visits to the Sabbath, she names and thereby implicates a number of other persons whom she saw there. 
the 12th day into the trial, the court presses charges relating to harm to the community, namely storm raising. In order to elicit her confession to this monstrous crime, she is placed in the Spanish boots, which crush the leg bones, and is lashed. So that's really just a great example. Well, it's really a scary example, a horrendous example of the kinds of torture that women endured. And throughout the book, she describes this torture. Women getting their breasts cut off in front of their families. Women being searched for the marks of the devil all over their bodies, in their cavities <laughs> of their bodies. You know? Right. She describes that as like a, a, a rape-like atmosphere, you know, where women are being explicitly and sexually searched for the devil's mark mm -hmm. and the um, misappropriation of women's anatomy, you know, not understanding the clitoris, accusing the woman of having a clitoris, maybe that's more visible of having an actual devil's mark. So things like that are all throughout this book. So you begin to see when you read this that it isn't just burning women at the stake. It is an all-out attack on women's sexuality and agency, and which is where I want to really start talking about what she talks about is this moral suppression of women's sexuality by the church and by the state, right? Which started with Adam and Eve. Eve was the sinner. It was Eve's fault. And we, and we get this throughout the book, seeing that men's sexual desires are the fault of women. Women are being blamed for really everything. And not only that, but sexuality is being vilified, right? Mm -hmm. Sexuality, a woman's sexuality is evil. So going back to Eve, then that paradox that is created through that story that Eve is the originator of sin, even though she is also the creator of humankind, she is the originator of sin. And then you have Mary, the virgin mother, who really, these two stories combined, sever the woman woman's sexuality from her spirituality. And then the church uses women's sexuality against them. And it's interesting because all of these persecutions, like in that passage that I just read that says that a prayer, even the secular courts, when they begin to persecute women, are still like starting their court sessions with the Bible because they're basing all of this on the Bible, on religious authority. So Again, women's sexuality is, first of all, that women are overly sexual beings, that they have a higher rate of, um, what is it, sexual appetite than men, that their sexuality is evil, something to be feared, something to feel threatened by, but also that women were less intelligent than men. And because they were less intelligent, they were considered more vulnerable to being seduced by the devil. So this culture for many years believed in magic, right? That women were practicing magic. But not only that, at some point she talks about in this book that they start to see women's magical powers coming straight from the devil. So they're getting their powers of healing, of medicinal work, of herbal remedies, all these things that they have agency in through the devil and that is evil. So where does that leave women now with their connection to sexuality and their own sexuality? If sex, women's sexuality is sinful. Absolutely. You know, and, and we all lose, we all lose, not just women, but men lose not having women that are in touch with their sexuality. You know, we, we, we're not in touch. We feel guilty. We feel shame. We're not able to meet men sexually, and we come from a long lineage of being shamed and blamed for our sexuality and killed, maimed. Shamed, blamed, and maimed. There you go. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> yeah, and that's the other thing that she really keeps coming back to is the atmosphere of fear that this creates for women to think about that, you know, it's 
again, when you just focus on like just one incident in Salem or something like that, you only see that as like an isolated event. But when you see how widespread it was across Europe, how many women, in some cases, whole villages of women would have been burned. And also one thing to clarify when we say women, she makes the point is that not only were women burned, men and women were burned at the stake, but children. And they considered the age of womanhood to be from 11 to 20. So that was uh, the average age for a lot of these women. I mean, there were all kinds of women. She talks about reasons why women were attacked. You know, old women were uh, could be um, targeted because of their old age, because of ageism, because they might be poor, destitute, right? A burden on the state. So they might be targeted, but also powerful women, women who were speaking out, women who were smart. Women um, who owned property. Women who owned property, right? Um, there's all kinds of reasons that women were targeted. So it isn't just the old hag that we see, you know, there's that archetype of the old hag witch, that was certainly one element, but there were younger women being persecuted, wealthy women being persecuted for all kinds of reasons. So you really see that it wasn't just this one little thing. It was really the power that these women represented as a whole. Absolutely. And, you know, men would use women to compete with other men too, other powerful men. So the women of powerful men were accused of witchcraft. You know, it was all manipulation, control, power dynamics that were running this witch craze. And, you know, that kind of leads me to another really great point that she makes in this book. So she really talks about the economics of female sexuality and the economic reasons why women were being persecuted. And I like this discussion because it's really useful to understand how sexuality was used by women and why, right? And she talks a little bit about, you know, this sexual exchange for resources, this idea that in this world where women had no access to basically any of society's building blocks, no education, no say in the church, no authority over politics, no legal representation, nothing in the building blocks of society, well, then what did they turn to? Well, they turned to magic and the spiritual teachings that have been passed down through generations, mother to daughter. They had power in the home. They had power right? in the home, but they also had power in the community as like healers, healers, midwives, yep, and mm -hmm. potion makers. You know, you can think of potion makers as early therapists, wet nurses, wet nursing, right? Mm -hmm. Midwifery and wet nursing was a huge uh, realm for women in sexuality. But not only that, but even through the marriage, because if you think about how important it was for women to be married, they needed resources that they could only get through marriage. And so like they didn't have access to hire skilled labor. They didn't have access to apprenticeships that would make them experts in their field. And they started to, laws started to be passed that kept women working outside of their home. They had to work within their home. Commodities couldn't be made outside of the home, basically. Right. And I, I just want to like even go back a little further to understand this. There is a shift in roles when we moved into more agrarian societies. And men were plowing the fields. Women were taking care of responsibilities in the home and child rearing. And more and more as societies grew, institutions grew, women were still in the home, men were outside of the home. And so men continued to gain control and power of institutions outside of the home, developing societies, women stayed in the home, and women now had very little agency in the world outside of the home. Right. So I'm just I'm trying to bring, bring this into even even a larger historical framework, figuring this out. And then religions came about. Right. And then um, and then we started to have, you know, issues of 
of serious control issues for women who had no agency, no resources in the outer world beyond the family, beyond the home. Yeah. So how far can you go back, basically? Yeah. I mean, you can try to go even further back than what this book is dealing with was the Middle Ages, a particular moment in European history, right? That's where we're at with this book. You could go further back. And other people have tried to, uh, the Caliban and the Witch book that we um, haven't read yet in, in our book club, but I've read in addition to this book. I can't remember the author's name right now, but she really talks about this transitional phase in between a feudal society and a capital society, capitalism and industrialization, and how women get caught in that transition and how the power dynamics shift. Which is really important. This point is really important because even in witch craze, she goes over this, that when the economic environment changed, women who had less agency, less resources, were squeezed the most by the shifting economics. Everyone was affected, but women were squeezed the most and lost the most. Right. Yeah, and so they lost resources. So then resources becomes a really important commodity because, and this is a class issue too. So there's, she talks a little bit about class distinctions, but not much, but other writers talk about the class distinction here. Like, so lower class women, married women would be doing different kinds of work than an upper class, wealthier woman with different circumstances. And then even poor single women would then be experiencing even more of this absence of resources. So that like, so for example, like if you, you have sort of a, a lower class working woman, she might be supplementing her husband's income within a marriage. And that work is still, even when women are doing paid labor, they're still being paid less than the man. They're still taking on marginalized work. And then then the women who are even poorer, who are unmarried, are then into the realms of like prostitution. And that becomes a source of income and resource. Again, going back to women's sexuality, prostitution being a form of resource, a resource for women and that being used against them. Well, and, and under the economic conditions of this shift from feudalism to capitalism, everyone was squeezed. And I think that's a really good point, you know, and and so there is there is this lack, this fear mentality of not having enough. And so who do we oppress? We oppress the poor, the underserved. Exactly. Which are women at this time. She writes here on page 64, as incomes dropped and taxes rose, women who worked mainly in marginal jobs were the first to feel the economic pinch. They also found that they had less say in their communities. Local power now flowed through the village assembly where each household had a voice, but that voice was spoken by the male head. As families and community structure became more patriarchal, women found it harder to express their grievances or to protect themselves. And I like how she also goes into, in the same topic, then why a lot of the accusers might also be women and how women would accuse other women. And it's interesting to think about this in a broader topic of women's sexuality and women against women, because we've used our sexuality against each other for a very long time. But in in these circumstances, of course, women, when they have limited resources, will then turn against other women in order to protect those resources. And so that's why you saw a lot of women, not only women accusing other women because they were being tortured, of course, they were being tortured in many cases, but also in other cases where women would just up and start accusing other women for various reasons, because the protecting of their resources. Like, for example, if a woman was having sex with her husband or something like that, women would then accuse because what does that mean for them if their husband is having sex with another woman then it's likely that his resources are going to another woman and not her. And then that 
Because when a woman only has the sanctity of marriage in order to be provided for, then that means everything to them. Then the decisions that they make, and, and even taking this into a modern concept now, bringing this back into how is this applicable now? Why is this important for us now? Resources are really important for women now. And we make all kinds of decisions and determinations with our sexuality, use our sexuality to get resources, to get what we need from men. Well, and I think the a common story for many women is still we go from one male-dominated household to another. You know, we're in a family where the father is at the head of the household taking care of the family, taking care of us, and I'm speaking for myself here, And then we enter into adulthood and we're looking for a man, again, to take care of us financially. And oftentimes it happens. Oftentimes, I would say most women don't have the opportunity to live alone, to take care of themselves financially, you know, to actually experience what it's like to be fully resourced before jumping into a relationship, jumping into a marriage, taking their partner's last name. You know, it's it's all very symbolic of women giving up their agency, even in this modern day. We do it in subtle ways. We're not even realizing. So I've been thinking about this a lot. I think this is a really good talking point because in feminist discourse, we oftentimes talk about women having enough agency to not be dependent on a man, right? But... I mean, I think that varies, that obviously uh, varies depending on a person's economic situation. Some women are more privileged to consider not marrying for the sake of having resources because they're already resourced from their family having money or something like that, right? So maybe lower income women might be more inclined to consider marriage because that's what they're thinking, especially if, you know, there's children involved, of course, then they need to have that help from someone else, you know, that dual income. I mean, having a dual income in the family now is pretty critical. But then also, women may or may not be getting married for those kinds of reasons. I mean, some people get married just for love, right? I mean, we live in a world now where we can get married just for love. But then women might find themselves divorced with kids. And so then they have to worry about resources for their children. And I think it's interesting from my perspective and my experience going through a divorce, having two kids and entering into the dating world and how to use my sexuality and why am I seeking somebody and am I seeking somebody because ultimately I want somebody to help me raise my children. And then you get into, again, sexuality and resources even when you do have the resources it's incredibly difficult i mean in comparison to other women i think i had adequate resources but i saw many of my friends who were married and weren't getting child support for example so they were working several jobs just to make enough money to have an apartment and a normal life like no excess just getting by basically and that's a challenge and then i saw many women then reaching out, you know, putting their sexuality out there to try to attract a person, a mate, somebody to take on that and help. And as a, as a feminist, you want to say, well, I can do it all myself. I don't need anybody else's help. There's that, that side of it because you want to feel empowered. You don't want to depend on anybody else, be vulnerable. But the other side of that is, I mean, can one person really be expected to do all that? especially if they're not resourced properly. It's unfair. Yeah, and and the thing that I'm really interested in is these sort of unconscious blocks or stories, beliefs that we have inherited from our past that completely inform how we live in the present and our economic situation as women. Many of the women I work with and the women's work that I do have this fear 
of being resourced, this lack mentality. And it is difficult for us economically to be in the world and be fully resourced and ask for our worth. This is a shared collective problem. Like we have inherited this because we come from millennia of not being empowered economically. Mm. And so it's a real thing. Mm -hmm. And as much as, you know, we hear that uh, women can work like men and they have the same opportunities and they're almost getting paid the same. That's fine. That's external factors that we can see. But what about these internal sort of subjective elements that inform the way we are in the world? And that comes from our history of being disempowered, oppressed, and burned at the stake. Burned at the stake for fully stepping into our power as healers, as midwives, as medicine women, and as, as even like wealthy landowners or influential women in the, in the communities. All of these women who were fully in their power doing work in the world, in the community, were basically prosecuted for that. Mm-hmm. And that imprint is carried down through the lineage. And we take that on. And we forget about this, you know? Right, we do. And it's interesting, I say this all the time when I get into these conversations with people about women in the workforce working like men. You know, we're still little, we're in a baby stage. We're still infants trying to figure this out because we just got all of this agency and acceptance into the men's world, into the workforce, into all these realms that men previously had access to. But what we've been doing is instead of valuing what we bring as women to the table, what we might change about how things are happening, instead we accommodate, we assimilate, and we change our nature to fit into the male mold of what all of this stuff is supposed to look like. So we work ourselves to death. And uh, we, we have a very difficult time balancing family life with work life. And I think men are also seeing this. They're suffering as well from the same problem, work-life imbalance. Well, we have to remember, first of all, know that all of this has been built up over hundreds of years by men based on a man's lifestyle and not a woman's lifestyle, not by women, not for women not to fit a woman's needs and that needs to shift and then so I want to kind of go back again to this economics of female sexuality and sexual exchange for resources because she talks about different ways women had built industry around female sexuality and that's really important women had agency around female sexuality through midwifery So birthing through abortions, through uh, birth control, different, different mechanisms of birth control, but also through healing and magic potions and things like that. Those were all, and wet nursing, wet nursing, the industry of wet nursing is really fascinating. We know very little about our last book that we talked about, Mother Nature and Maternal Instincts. There's a whole chapter devoted to the industry of wet nursing, which is fascinating. And I encourage anybody to do more research on that. But that all of these things were industry built around sexual agency. And when that started to be taken away from women, those were the building blocks of women's self-sustainable economy. And those were being just pulled out from underneath them left and right. So that now we're left with remnants of that where we see, she talks about this transition from um, the medical field, women being taken out of the medical field, being replaced by men being replaced by um, certified, educated men in the medical field and being marginalized to the nursing field, lower paid work for women, marginalizing women into these lower paying positions. That was a huge transition that we know very little about. Right. We become assistants to the men who are controlling our sexuality. It's really interesting because, you know, for millions of years, females have been in control 
of their sexuality. Homo sapiens, even animals, females, have always been in control over birth. I mean, it makes sense. It's our bodies. And it's only since the 1500s, really, that this shift started to occur. When women, yeah, when women were per- started to be persecuted for being the midwives, for being the healers. Mm. And then the shift started to occur where men were replacing the women in this field, in this profession. Right, in this profession, yeah. Right? So, I mean, this is a, this is a recent shift. Right. And there's so much that men don't know about the female body and well, there's these some processes. Inter- yeah, there's some interesting statistics on the death rate that went up for women when that happened, that transition was happening, because men did know very, so little about female anatomy and birthing and all of these things that were previously... I mean, when, women, when men first entered into this field, they weren't even allowed to look at the female anatomy, basically. I mean, women had to be covered up. And so, I mean, how strange is that? And it's basically trying to do medicine with your blinders on. And so women became more vulnerable to death and and all kinds of issues that happened with birthing during this time period. I don't have the statistics with me now, but I've read it and there are statistics out there. Well, and it's it's all in the news. Serena Williams and all of this stuff that this trauma happening at birth, these near death or death experiences happening at birth because of the negligence of the doctors. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, this is, this is happening. This is real world stuff. So, <laughs> and yeah, and it's interesting to look at, well, wet nursing, for example, we know so very little about wetness or wet nursing and breastfeeding. I mean, we had a whole industry of wet nursing where women were breastfeeding and breastfeeding other people's babies. And that's all fascinating. But just think about how only recently within the last couple decades, how we gotten back on board with our most primal instinctual function of our anatomy, which is to breastfeed our babies. You know, how crazy is that? And then only recently midwifery, you know, being illegal to practice that in so many different states and only just getting that, that very recently. And it's still problematic with licensing and things like that in the midwifery world. I mean, Wait, it's so, crazy. so tell our listeners what we found out about Alabama, because, you know, I'm being from California, midwifery is, is a thing. And it's always been a thing in my world. Um, but here, it was illegal for 40 years. Yeah, I think Al- we found that Alabama was one of the states in which it was illegal to practice midwifery. With certification or without certification, just recently in the, the past, hospital. 2017, mm-hmm. there was a shift in legislation. Yeah. Um, but prior to that, maybe 1975 was the time they were practicing it for, I don't know, a decade maybe before yeah. it became illegal. I mean, yeah. So you definitely see the hospital, the medical field, dominating over what was previously done by women in in the home with midwives who are more understanding of female anatomy and birthing practices that are more conducive to an, you know, a natural childbirth without the tears and, and all, and then the medicines and epidurals and all these things. So, you know, that's again, a form of that industry that we once had ownership of that was taken away from us, that women were being persecuted because women were giving abortions. That was a huge deal. It was one of the main reasons why women were attacked, but also because they threatened that, that up and coming institution for men, the medical field, you know, as they were trying to squash the super, what they, the magic, what they called superstition and replace it with, um, science, science, facts, facts, the mind. exactly. But what was always hypocritical and ironic, and she keeps pointing this out is that a lot of the same men who were persecuting the women for magic were also using magic. Absolutely. So, I mean, it's just... These are the double standards. Right. Right. The double standard. The double standard for women using magic, but also the double standard for women... And sex. And sex. Yeah. Women can't be sexual. Our role model is the Virgin Mary who had an immaculate conception. (laughs) So we are not allowed to be sexual but the double standard is, of course, men are allowed to be sexual. And then that gets into what you were talking about previously, which is 
blaming women for their own sexual desires. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I like what you were saying earlier before we started recording about prostitution and, um, and how men could go off and sleep with prostitutes and come home to their wives. And that's never been acceptable for women to do. All right. There's not a, an, an industry for women to do that. Yeah. So uh, prostitution. Yeah, I think one of the things I said, um, it's interesting to look at the industry of prostitution and that double standard with male sexuality. Um, even when we read Victorian writing by women, women are always dealing with this, this, um, this problem where it's acceptable for the man to go out and have sexual relationships outside of the relationship, outside of the marriage, go to brothels, go to prostitutes. And, and yet they're still like, they're that sexy wild man, what they call the rake that needs to be, um, whose sexuality needs to be tempered. Whereas the woman is supposed to pretend as though the coquette, like she doesn't know that anything about sex, she's not a sexual being. And so she's trying to seduce him into this monogamous. monogamous relationship. And that whole being attracted to that man because of those sexual characteristics that he's allowed to enact and show and lead with, whereas she's supposed to be completely the opposite. So that double standard in Victorian culture and Victorian literature still carries over into and has carried over into the 20th century and now the 21st century. And women still feeling like we need to give sexual favors to get what we want in relationship. It's still there. Oh, yeah. How many women have sex because in exchange for chores, household chores? You know, how many women do these kind of exchanges for sexual favors consciously or even unconsciously? to try to just keep peace in the relationship because maybe the male sex drive is higher or something like that. There's so many different sort of subtle ways in which we still use our sexuality in exchange for something that we need. Yeah. We've been trained to do so. And it just like, you know, I, I just keep thinking how many relationships, and this is sort of the common joke between men and women and we, we talk about this in our book club, like men really, they need a lot of sex, like three times a week is not enough. It's not enough three times a week. And the women are like, God, like that is a lot of sex. <laughs> it's a lot of sex. I know, especially when you have a life and you have children, and you have responsibilities, or even if you don't have children, you just have something going on. And I think it's funny because Back in during this time period, women were always being perceived as being the ones that had the high sex drive, wanting being insatiable sexually. But then I think about that. I mean, like, no, I don't think that's true because most women don't want to have a lot of sex, not because they don't necessarily want to have sex, but I think it's because we have so much responsibility. I think that, and we're definitely not using, maybe some women are, but I think we're not using porn to the extent that men are, which is stimulating their sex drive. Well, and we have our moon cycles and we have the risk of getting pregnant and we right. have all the, you know, effects of birth control that we have to take on. Men don't have to. I mean, so there's a lot of factors that lead to our different needs, you know? And then there's the, the, the concept of quality versus quantity really and if you're having quality sex this could last for hours and who has time for that right. I mean we're really looking for more I, I'm not gonna I'll make a blanket statement maybe but I maybe I'm looking for more quality connection and that takes time and we don't have 12 hours a week to put into having sex with our partners, unfortunately. We don't live in that world. Right. Yeah. And I think then that's where we start to get into exhausted women, women overextending themselves in different, in different realms. And then again, coming back to that exchange, women needing resources, needing help, 
and offering sexuality in exchange for that help. Mm -hmm. I think that's a real thing. I think that happens to, that's a lot of people's situation. Absolutely. So again, coming back to that argument, that exchange, like what do women have to give? Well, sexuality is a pretty big commodity for men. And again, oh, and that leads me to wanting to talk about the commodification of women and women's sexuality. Mm, yeah. I think that's what we really saw during the sexual revolution in the 50s and 60s. The commodification of women's sexuality for male desire, for resources still coming back primarily to men. I think we're still unpacking that. Looking back on that, women are just seeing that. I think we had some blinders on for a while. A lot of women saw it, but a lot of women didn't see it. And so this this idea that, I mean, talk about body image problems, right? We talk a lot about body images in the media, the media portraying women a certain way. Well, if you go back to when that first started, women being portrayed sexually, I mean, that's for male gain and economic gain. It's still a control tactic. So men define what is beautiful. I mean, men have been defining female beauty way back, you know, as artists, men being primarily the ones who depict female beauty in art. Mm. But then when you get into the commercialization, you get into other forms of um, representation of female beauty. It's still in the men's realm, right? Yeah, and I'm just I'm just trying to relate. I know there's something here. I'm just trying to relate it to the you know, witch trials, witch burning era where older women, less desirable women were persecuted, killed. Yeah. And perhaps the prettier, more docile, more controllable women were saved from persecution and then that was even you know carried down through the lineage right so it was like the wild woman the old woman the powerful woman the wise woman the wise woman were the ones that were targeted and what was left was the young, docile, pretty woman that was objectified, sexualized, who didn't have that strength in character necessarily to stand up, and nor could she because she would be killed. Right, and that's that's pertinent because when you get into literature in the um, in the eighteenth century, nineteenth century literature, you start to see women characterized as dolls yeah, and criticized for their superficiality, their emphasis on fashion and their um, inability to um, do anything other than gossip. They start to become criticized for the very thing that they were pushed into. This is our history. But the wild woman... <laughs> The wise woman, the powerful woman is making a comeback. Yes. Are we making this comeback in the South? Um, I think we are making this comeback. We're seeing evidence of this comeback in the South, but it is a very slow comeback. Many women are still in the dark. Many women are still experiencing trauma and behavior and um, and thinking habits related to this historical trauma that they really aren't even unaware of, right? And I think that is a, a good segue into a conversation that I really want to have about women in consciousness and the kind of work that you're doing, Amaya, in your field with raising consciousness with female sexuality, female energy, and that kind of thing. Can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, it's there's so much to be said. And maybe we can I can just share what I shared yesterday during the training we were at. Um, 
which I'm a conscious dance facilitator and I do conscious dance facilitator trainings. And we had one yesterday and Lee was there. It was really, really awesome. And we were talking about, you know, sexuality on the dance floor and starting to become really aware of our energy and how we project our energy out into the world. Conscious dance is basically a freeform dance practice. That's like a it's like a dance party for adults, um, without any substances, no alcohol, no drugs, sober dance. So you become very aware of your energy, your field, the 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 field and the energy of the others that you're dancing with. And when I first started dancing, I I was attracting all these um, sort of pervy men and I couldn't understand I was like what is going on this is like ah so uncomfortable and then I realized that I was actually projecting a needy sexual energy that I was needing validation from men and I was using my sexuality to get it when I learned to bring my energy back in when I saw clearly what I'd been doing, learned how to control my energy, those men no longer were being attracted towards me. So it was a shift. It was a shift. And I realized, oh my gosh, like this is actually what we do as women unconsciously for validation in the world. We use our sexuality. And this is the long history that we have with sexuality being our only, our only agency in the world. So, you know, it's a real thing now that we deal with as women. And we're doing it all the time. When we post pictures on Facebook, you know, on Instagram, all of our selfies and our bikinis and all this stuff, why do we do this? What is our motivation? We're throwing around our sexuality for validation for control, for resources. Yeah, I think that um, it's really good to pause there and really think about that. You know, um, I certainly don't want to in any way, shape or form say that I'm against women expressing themselves sexually because I want to see women create a, a more solid connection between sexuality and spirituality, which is what we are seeing on the dance floor we are seeing women who want to become more in touch with the wild woman that has been lost. Women are desperate for that. I see that desperation on a whole nother level of consciousness than what this neediness, this uncertainty of how to use our sexuality, of always referring or deferring back to sexuality as a source for resourcing rather than sexuality as a source for creativity. Right. And this is and this is what we learn on the dance floor. Yeah. We learn that this this energy that comes up in us when we're dancing and when we're going through life, really it's a metaphor, can actually be channeled, the sexual energy can actually be channeled into creative movement, action, ideas, inspiration in the world. And you know, this is why women are so disconnected from their sexuality. Why so many women don't actually even experience orgasm, true orgasm. Our orgasm isn't for us. It's for the external validation. And see, I, this is what's so important that we understand our history. Because we wonder, why am I having you know, intimacy problems? Why am I not connected to my sexuality? Why have I not understood you know, orgasm and connection in this way and it's because of our our past our history i mean it's obvious when we look at it i mean a huge part of it is understanding what this book is talking about in terms of our sexuality yeah and how our sexuality fits into our agency yeah yes yeah and, and our spirituality i will keep coming back to this notion again and again 
that we have to bridge the divide between female sexuality and spirituality. They are aligned and not at odds with one another. So we kind of, <sighs> we need to wrap this up. Yeah, we do. I think this is a good stopping point for our conversation. So thank you for listening. If you like this conversation, please give us some comments, some feedback. Subscribe to our podcast. Tell us what you think. Join the conversation. The more comments we can get from you guys, the more we can have good content in our podcast that you want to listen to. And you can visit our website at femsouth.com. We're on Facebook as well. And Instagram. And Instagram. So check us out. Get involved in the conversation. Let us know what you think. Give us your insights. We want to hear from you. And thanks for listening. You're on Fan South. South.